Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1979 Werner Herzog film Nosferatu the Vampire. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. I'm a little frustrated that I cannot greet you in a Werner Herzog voice, but I just don't <laughs> do it well enough to inflict that on our listeners. All right. I, I have to say he has become, um, I think I mentioned this on the last episode, but like of the things that I have gleaned from the first 99 films that we've looked at, one of them is that uh, Herzog went from somebody that I had heard of, but didn't really hadn't seen anything that he had done, didn't really know anything about to now he's one of my favorite filmmakers. This is the second narrative film he made. I am obsessed with documentaries that he's made um, just to, to let fans know I have been working as we approach 100 films. I've been working on ranking the 100. I did this at 50 um, and I am shocked how high his uh, um, documentary about the internet is on my list. That movie, I think about that movie almost every day and it scares me. It's the, well, maybe the scariest. If we're talking about horror, Werner Herzog horror movies, that is a scarier movie than this movie. Um, but I, but, but we watched uh, A Gear of the Wrath of God. That movie haunts me. This movie uh, is phenomenal. I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, he has so many things going on in this movie. Um, so I want to talk about it both narratively. I want to talk about it filmmaking wise. Um, to start with, you said uh, you mentioned last week that this is a movie. When I asked you about your history about it, you're going to tell me that you saw this in the theater. So uh, tell me about your history with this movie. What expectations did you have in 1979 going to see this movie? That's a good question. So, yeah, but in 79, I had I had seen Agira. Um, I had seen Strozek or no, I'm sorry, Wojciech. I'd seen Wojciech and Agira and I maybe had seen one other Herzog. So. Um, I went into it with pretty high expectations. Um, I had seen his work with Kinski. I knew how how great he was at uh, a creepy atmosphere. So I I, I went in. I real I think I went in hoping kind of to be really scared um, and certainly weirded out a, a little bit as well. You know, the other thing I can't remember, Sam, and I had forgotten about this till I started doing the research. I had forgotten that he had done both an English and a German language version, and. Uh, which, by the way, uh, in the early days of filmmaking, this was something that was done before people came up with subtitles. Um, uh, Laurel and Hardy, in particular, would film uh, would do would do a scene in English, and they would do German or French using some kind of um, uh, pronunci- you know, attempting to pronounce it pronounce it phonetically. But I cannot, for the life of me, remember. And I asked my wife, and she couldn't either. I could not remember whether I actually saw the German language version or the English language version in '79. Uh, for this round, the only one that was available that I could find readily was the English language version. Uh, and he does a, a mix of actors actually speaking English or, and, and, and dubbing at other times. Sometimes he shot the same scene twice. Sometimes he, he didn't. Um, but anyway, so whichever one I saw, it was 1979. I can picture the theater I was sitting in in, in Brunswick, Maine. Have you, have you seen it since then? I mean, up till now? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like I saw it one more time, but I honestly can't remember exactly when that was. It's it's that first time that's still strongest sure. in my memory. So, so what was it like watching it forty three years later, revisiting it? Uh, terrifying in that I could not remember how few scenes I actually remembered. Um, so, so in that sense, it was distressing to me. But at the same time, um, it was also interesting because I recognized certain. Um, Herzog touches 
that I'm not sure I would have recognized as readily before. So there's times when the film is reminiscent of Agira. Uh, there are times when the film is reminiscent of other things that we've watched. There's at least one scene where I thought of exterminating angels, uh, the exterminating angel. So I think that I saw it with a, and of course, having most recently rewatched Murnau's film, I was able to see this much more as the homage to, to Murnau than it is. That was not on my radar in 1979. So, so one of the things that I came into this with, um, knowing what I know about Herzog, um, you know, knowing how much when we watched Agira, we, Agira, the Wrath of God, we talked a lot about like uh, how Herzog likes, likes to almost create the difficulty that's happening in the movie for the people making the movie. I mean, Akira, uh, excuse me, Agira seems like a, a nightmare shoot in some ways, and that's sort of intentional. I mean, the greatest version of that is Fitzcarraldo. Like, if you're going to make a movie about moving a boat over a mountain, let's move a boat over a mountain. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so what is his take on on uh, a vampire movie then like does he just find a real vampire i mean like <laughs> like 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 I, so so i was i was so interested in um like like what does what does a herzog version of this of this movie look like um so how what do you think drew him to this story because he doesn't strike me as somebody who um would be particularly interested in remaking a movie and this is so I mean, homage is the right word, but this is so clearly saying, I want to honor what Murnau did. I want to make Murnau's movie, but like also make it a Werner Herzog movie. Why this? Yeah, that's that's a really good question because Her- Herzog was not particularly interested in, as you said, he was not particularly interested in Dracula. He, as far as I could find out, he hadn't seen any other Dracula films except for Murnau's. And I don't think he, I'm not sure if he even had read Stoker's Stoker's novel. I, but I think it has a lot to do with, um, well, two, I think it's two things. One is, it's, it is Murnau himself. Um, Herzog was a child of the World War II generation. He was born, he was born in the you know, 42 or 44. Um, and he felt, he said somewhere that we're, we're a generation without fathers. There's the notion that in order to figure out who, who, what is my heritage, Herzog felt that he had to go back to an earlier generation. And he 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 fixed fixated on on Murnau uh, for whatever reason as his kind of his cultural and cinematic forebear. So I think it was because it was Murnau, uh, and that's why then it became Nosferatu. But secondly, he also sees the film as an effort to make a kind of social commentary, a little bit different from Murnau's. We talked about Murnau's as being possibly a commentary on on World War One and the condition of Weimar Germany. Uh, and Herzog wants to make a kind of a, a similar but slightly different commentary on bourgeois values. Uh, and um, and also, also it's, it's very much a Herzog take on, um, as you can tell by the ending of this film, not to jump too far ahead, but it's a very different take in terms of how he resolves uh, what he sees uh, as his criticism of modern society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was fascinated by how much this film is you know, in moments intentionally shot for shot, it's like, Oh, he, I want him. I want to try to make this look like Murnau did. And at the same time, it is very different. It is. um, It's weird because (laughs) they're both films that are kind of bleak in particular ways, but kind of in different ways. And, you know, the way you think about the, um, the, the, the pain and and sadness in the movies are the, the two movies are very different. I, I, this is maybe the best version of a remake I've seen in in certain ways where it is saying like we are we are 
remaking this not because we think something is broken about the original, but we want to redo. We want to. We want to, in some ways, remake the the, the original, and at the same time, we want to um, expand on it. But it doesn't yeah. break the original. It doesn't make me think anything less of the the Murnau movie. Like it is. It is in such conversation with the Murnau movie, uh, and I just was really impressed by that, because I, 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 it's always strange to think about, especially I mean, remaking a movie is one thing, remaking a movie that is a iconic classic in a particular way is yet another thing, and I think he pulls that off in such interesting ways. Yeah, I really I really like the, the term used, uh, Sam, of, of a conversation, and, and it actually makes me think of uh, T.S. Eliot's definition of the canon. You know, the notion that, that when a work joins the canon, it, it engages in it, it, it engages with a previous work in the canon, in a sense, kind of appropriates it, but then creates its own its own uh, its own work on top of that. So when you think about the way Eliot in his own poetry will either echo or even quote previous poets, in a sense, that's I think that's exactly Herzog's method here. So you get um, you get visual, you, you know, you get a number of visual quotes. Um, it's it's interesting to me though that the things that he doesn't replicate. You know, so the very creepy scene in the ship, you know, when Nosferatu just levitates out of his coffin. It's, it seems significant to me that Herzog doesn't try to redo that. I think he sees that as, um, as so distinctively Murnau's, right, that he's not going to kind of steal that. But there, because that, that in itself, that, that's, a, that's a singular shot. It isn't really a style. What he, he kind of borrows from Murnau is, is the style and often kind of the composition of the frame. Um, so you get Lucy by the seaside, for example, and you get the way that uh, the way that Nosferatu uh, or Dracula in this film, uh, the way he uh, lurks in the uh, in the doorway, or the way his shadow is thrown against a, against a, against a building. The other thing that Herzog does, though, is which is not just about Murnau, but about silent film in general. There are moments of what, for a modern viewer, look like overacting. On the, on the part of the, of the characters. Uh, uh, Lucy in particular, waking up from her dream, the faint she goes into when, when Jonathan comes back. I think those are also homages to, to the silent film style. Um, Herzog knows that those are over the top and they look a little silly in a contemporary film, but I think he wants to throw that in there again as part of his, uh, part of his honoring the tradition. It's interesting, what you, you know, I hadn't thought about the, the, the parts with the boat. In the in 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 Murnau's film, that sequence is so much longer. There's so yeah. many parts to that, and Herzog doesn't do much with that. And and, and so it's almost like he's saying, "Well, okay, Murnau, like that. We're gonna that that one's yours. Like where I'm not. There's really only a, there's only I think one shot of yeah. Dracula on the boat, mm-hmm. and even that seems like it's a sort of a quote of like, well, I want to I want to do that one shot, but but mm-hmm. I but but." some of the other stuff isn't there. I think that's, that's really interesting. So uh, I want to start by a couple filmmaking things before we get into some of the ideas, some of the narrative stuff in this movie. For one thing, I was blown away reading that this, that the size of the crew for this film was 16 people. This was not, there was not a lot of people uh, involved in, in making this. And this movie looks fantastic. And more importantly than looking fantastic, this movie sounds about as good as any movie I've ever heard. The sound design is mm. uh amazing in this movie i don't know i don't do you have thoughts about sound here because that's the thing that blew me away more than almost anything else this movie is the sound is great yeah i i i i love the sound i love his you know he worked with the uh the group popol vu 
uh, and uh, they did the, they did the music for Aguirre, they did the, and they did the music for Fritz Corraldo. So when I think about sound, I think not just only about the ambient sound, but I think about the the musical choices he makes, from Popol Vuh to uh, Wagner with Das Rheingold to the closing Sanctus. Um, to me, that's as much about the the mood that the film evokes as it is about the images and and the marriage of the of the sound and the image, especially as Jonathan goes through the mountains and you get those kind of sublime uh, views of, of the mountains. It's, it's all about, I mean, this, this also gets back to the question about why go back to Murnau. And that is, even though in many respects, this is not expressionist filmmaking in terms of the way we think about classic expressionism, it is expressionist in terms of the way that he's projecting emotions onto, onto a landscape. And I think the soundscape is as much part of that as the visuals. Yeah. And, and I like the way that he employs music sparsely too. There's lots of moments, key moments in the film, which don't have music. Uh, and, and actually, and you, you mentioned ambient sound. And I think that's, that's a really crucial thing for laying out some themes here, because uh, one of the other ideas that's, that's very uh, interesting in this movie is the presence of animals in this movie, mm-hmm. both visually, but more in terms of sound uh, mm-hmm. and the, the different sounds of the animals of the night and the animals of the day, almost in the way that the like tinting on the, um, mm-hmm. uh, on, on, on the 1922 film sort of indicate, are you safe or are you in danger? Is it day? Is it night? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, there, there's something great about it at the end when the, the sun rises you hear the birds of the morning mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's more powerful than the sunrise because mm-hmm. before you see the sunrise, well, you hear, obviously you hear the rooster, but you also hear the birds in the trees in the morning. And there is something, anybody who's ever lived in a place with birds knows the sort of safe feeling about that. Mm-hmm. And when you're at uh, Dracula's castle, there is this just like mo animal moaning mm-hmm. sound in the background. Um, it, that the, the sounds of nature and the way that he's constantly, and this is, so this is part of like pulling back from, from musical score to allow for that stuff to happen at times. Um, and then I was telling my daughter who, who didn't get a chance to watch this, but she's really excited. Um, I said, uh, this is, this, this movie sounds, uh, is the best sounding movie since we watched fantastic planet, which has, this has another connection to, um, <laughs> like the, also just like the, the sounds of the horse hooves, you know, mm. on the cobblestone, like there was so much care put into the, the sounds of this movie, but along <laughs> with great sounds visual, also amazing visuals. Uh, I, Herzog is a painter in this movie. There are, there were at least five moments when I did my rewatch, I went through and was taking notes and I marked every time that I saw something on the screen where I thought that just looks like a painting. It looks, and, and they, they especially look like 19th century paintings to me. Um, so I'm just going to point some of these out there at the very, towards the very beginning, there are these two little kittens playing on a bookshelf with apples, mm-hmm. right? And he does this thing where he, the, the color is like very saturated. And mm-hmm. then at other times, the color is really pulled away, depending on if you're at the seashore. Or where you're, but the something about these paintings, they, it looks like like 19th century still life painting. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. The, the color, the composition of that. Um, when Lucy, Lucy and Jonathan go to the sea at the beginning, and it's just this very stark um, kind of horizontal white on white. And you have these two figures in the wind. I mean, that, Again, that is a it's a that's just a gorgeous painting um, where there's where the color, the darks are very sparse there, but they're they're very meaningful. 
Um, the morning spread of food at Dracula's house, again, looks like a uh, 19th century um, um, still life painting. Uh, my favorite one of these, though, is Lucy at the Seaside Cemetery, where you only see her back. Mm-hmm. I want a painting of that to hang on. I might do a painting <laughs> of that to hang on my wall. Like That is such a beautiful still image with all kinds of imagery around it and a lot of stuff you can think about. And then finally, when Lucy's waiting by the window before Harker gets home, there's this very still shot of her staring kind of longingly out the window. And you're looking from the outside, looking in on her. And again, that looks like a 19th century kind of romantic portrait. Like I, I was just stunned by how beautiful this movie looks, uh, especially in some of those moments. Yeah, and and I, and I think the other element of uh, visual art, the other element of 19th century painting and late 18th century, is you get in terms of the landscapes, you get a lot of Caspar David Friedrich. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a big influence on Murnau's film as well, and you know what he's about, and and this is where you get this also in, in films like Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo, is this notion of of the sublime. You know, the idea that somehow nature so he's he's into you know big skies storms mists forests ruins and crosses but but the irony is that friedrich is trying to uh invoke the presence of god through the contemplation of nature and i think herzog is more interested in the absence of god uh as you look at nature uh so it's but but again he's following in Murnau's footstep steps and kind of stepping back to an even earlier german cultural uh, for, forebear I also thought there were moments when you could see uh, Herzog as a documentarian here too. There are some very patient shots, especially patient shots of nature. Um, so there's a, some great shots where we're watching. Sometimes they're time lapse. Sometimes they don't even feel like they're time lapse. He just caught the exact perfect moment of transition from day to night, mm-hmm. where you're just watching the uh, the silhouette of the mountaintop as the sky is becoming night, and it's like that's that's a documentarian right there. That's somebody who knows like the, the drama is playing out in front of us. Let's just put the camera there and we don't need to do anything else, but, but, but just let this unfold. And even, you know, there's a little bit of a gear in, I feel like in Harker's um, trip through the, uh, the Borgo pass, you know, you get this sort of, he takes his time, this long, um, <laughs> this, this long kind of stretch uh, where he is climbing, climbing the rocks and the water and all this stuff. And it made me think of like, Oh, this is this. Like, I imagine he, I imagine he had that actor climb a lot that day in the same way in a gear. It's like, we're just going to try, we're just going to trudge through the rainforest. Like, um, so, so that, that, that there, there were moments like that where I felt like, okay, yeah, this, I, I've seen this from him and I kind of loved it. Well, the big, the big Aguirre moment for me is the raft going down the river with the coffee. Yes. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just, this is just, this Aguirre all, all over again. But it's also a Murnau quote because Murnau has that yeah. same shot. Yeah. So yeah, so, so it's, exactly. it's both of those things. Um, okay, we need to get to the, the one of, there's really two, I mean, there's two central characters to this movie, but, but the person I was most excited to see on camera was Klaus Kinski. Uh, I was telling my daughter again before I watched this when she was she was going to watch it with me, and I said uh, I was trying to ex- explain to her why I was excited for this, and I was trying to explain who Klaus Kinski was to her, and then I said, "And he's going to play the vampire," and it's, and I was like, "I have no idea what to expect from him, <laughs> but I know, but I know it's going to be really great." And I just and but I was expecting, I was expecting something so big from him. And he played with my expectations because he is so much 
the opposite of that in lots of ways. The first time you hear his voice in the movie, it is, it's, it, it's so interesting because it's not like the voice has very little accent, even very little affectation to it. Like it's, it was just such a calm voice when I heard it and instantly, even though he looks grotesque, like Max Shrek, it was it's such a humanizing voice from from Kinski, you know, when when he's welcoming Harker in, and I was just like, well, so the second I heard him talk, I thought, oh wow, I was expecting one thing, and he's giving me something else, and I was totally, I was so excited at that point. But I think that maybe that goes back to 1979. You asked about my expectations. I think because it was Kinski, I did expect a little bit of a different take on the character. Uh, it was much, yeah, much more. Uh, much more understated from Kinski than I, than I expected. But at the same time, you know, it, it's hard not to look at a, look at the character and, and be aware to a certain extent that it's Kinski. Um, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't destroy the illusion, but it's, I, I think it, it gives the character the sense of um, a kind of a coiled power. It's like, it's like you, you always feel that at any moment he could break out. And of course there's a little bit of that when he, backs Jonathan into, into, the, into the chair. And it's a, it's a very strange moment, right? Because he advances on Harker and, and, and he just kind of keeps backing up and backing up. And, and, and neither of them really say anything. It's like, you know, Harker doesn't say, what the heck are you doing? Or get, or get away. They just kind of go through this charade with each other. as though each of them kind of understands what's at stake, but neither of them really wants to say anything. And so I think that that's a really powerful moment that kind of draws the, draws the audience in at the same time. So I think he's much more menacing uh, that way. And you get the sense of somebody who is both compelled to do what he's doing, and yet at the same time is trying to restrain himself from doing it. And I think oh, that's, that's, that's very powerful. Yes, I mean, that, that, is, that is the big interesting theme of this movie. And right before that scene, the, the moment when he's sort of backing Harker into the corner is the one time, I like the way you talked about it as sort of this coiled energy. When, when Harker cuts his thumb, his first response is to turn away. Mm. And then it's the one time where you get something close to a jump scare where he just quickly turns back and like pounces and he doesn't pounce to attack him. He pounces just to suck the blood off his finger. But you just get this moment of like, okay, I guess I knew as a viewer, I knew that was coming, but I also didn't know. And it sets up every other moment. Then you're like, okay, well, are we going to, are we going to get it? Are we going to get the moment when, when like you, you spring into this like bigger explosive action, you keep waiting for that in some ways. So yeah, I, 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 I thought the the choices made there were just really um, really phenomenal, um, you know, in terms of that. And like I said, you know, he is uh, at this. I am amazed by how, in some ways, how ridiculous he looked. And this, you know, like like he looks so inhuman with the, especially the teeth are such a strain that had to be so hard to act with that, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, so he looks, I mean, there, there is this sense where it's, he's both, like I said, grotesque and sympathetic. And it made me think about the, uh, the opening shot of this film during the credits, we see these mummies, these very, these real mummified bodies from Mexico that Herzog mm-hmm. went and filmed. Um, and I think about those and those are both, they're terrifying to look at. They're very, very unsettling to look mm-hmm. at. They're scary to look at. And at the same time, like, they are human beings. Mm-hmm. Those are mm-hmm. those are actually so. Like you have this sense of like, what should my reaction to this be? Should my reaction be horror? Or should my reaction be sympathy for the clear pain that these 
that these beings are in, whether it's the, the, the mummified corpses or whether it's Dracula. I think that's a really interesting point, Sam, because, you know, a lot of, I think one of the things this film does um, more than any, I think probably more successfully than another vampire film I know, and there's a lot that I haven't seen, of course, but I, I do think it turns Dracula into a much more interesting, sympathetic, ambiguous figure than most films do. And so it's interesting you mentioned starting with those, with those mummified figures, because, you know, ultimately this is a film about a confrontation with death. Uh, and dealing with the fact that, you know, death is, is the end for us all. And so starting with those mummified figures who are also kind of caught, it seems like, you know, they're caught in moments of pain or, or suffering, uh, which directly kind of foreshadows uh, the condition of, of, of Dracula. Uh, and also uh, Herzog arranged them to go from kind of youngest to oldest. So it's kind of like it's a progression of life through various stages of death. And so it's a beautiful visual metaphor, in a sense, for what's played out in Dracula's story. And it helps connect Dracula, you know, much more to us than, uh, than in a lot, of other, a lot of other versions. And of course, as we'll talk about, his relationship with Lucy and, and, and some of the, and the conversations he has with both Lucy and, and Harker, that kind of, you know, play out how his, some of his um, pain is not remote from the pain that any a live person feels so so he, he's not so alienated from us as being undead because he really still has his feet in the land of the living and he he wishes he could have his feet more in the land of the living but he can't yeah i mean i love i love you know and i i wrote a lot of quotes on as i was because because that's one of the things that um that herzog has in his tool in his toolkit that murnau didn't is the ability to put more longer you know sets of dialogue in the voice of these characters so you know at the castle he says to harker uh centuries come and go to be unable to grow old is terrible can you imagine enduring centuries experiencing each day as the same futile thing <laughs> um which made me think of two things uh it made me think of the first movie we watched which is groundhog day okay. right experiencing the same thing you know uh which is a, a different take on that idea but it also to, to bring up somebody you've already mentioned it made me think of t.s Eliot and the epigraph to the wasteland mm -hmm. so i don't know if you you know in, in, in the epigraph to the wasteland um uh he, he quotes the story of the sibyl who was given uh eternal life but not eternal youth and and mm -hmm. so the epigraph is you know when the acolytes came to her to ask for what she wished she says i wish to die mm -hmm. and, it, so, and it's like when i so i'm always i'm always interested in that story of like um, you know, eternal life or immortality in, if not, if not presented in the right way is, is maybe the worst prison sentence. And, you know, so, so when I, when I heard him start to talk like this, I thought, oh, Dracula in this story is a character who like the Sybil, his one, his one desire is to die. He would like to be done with this, but at the same time, he has these like animal instincts to survive, mm -hmm. right? Like, so he, he still is drawn to feed everything, everything, every sort. And this is where I think the animal part is so interesting. It's really the presence of animals, like, because human beings have these animal instincts, these survival instincts. Um, but they're, they also are aware of death and are aware of the, and aware of thinking about meaning. Um, so, so, so I, I find that sort of at play within, uh, within the count really interesting. <laughs> 
And, you know, and then so so then I wonder, like, is the reason that he brings the plague is because if he can't die himself, the next best thing he can do is hasten death for other people. It's like, this is the thing I desire. And if I can't have it myself, at least I can give it to you. Yeah, he's yeah, he yeah, exactly. He's he still has a, a basic nature that he has to follow. Uh, but and, and, but that's the drama, right? It's that it's that. And, and it really does set up how 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 he ends how he ends because he desires to live at the same time he desires to die and he's he's struggling with those two with those two impulses. Um, but you know, bringing the rats that that of course is an interesting filmmaking story because Herzog, uh, the city they were filming in, was actually not interested in having him bring eleven thousand rats, uh, and they were white lab rats, and he had to dye them gray. So that meant that a number of them died. Um, Herzog does not have a good record in terms of treating animals well on the set. Um, the, other, the other thing that's interesting about choosing a Dutch town for the filming is that <laughs> these are towns that had been occupied by the Germans during the war. So they were actually not all that pleased with having a German film crew come upon them, let alone one bringing rats. So, so in a sense, it, it gets back to what you were saying earlier, Sam, about how it seems like the making of the film in some ways replicates uh, or, or echoes the topic of the film. So Herzog and his crew are themselves a kind of pestilential force as they come into town in the same way that, Her that, that, that uh, Dracula is, but they're filmmakers and they got to do what they got to do. And Dracula is a vampire and he's got to do what he's got to do. Right. And it, you know, all of that, that sort of, you know, instinct to survive, but this desire to die changes uh, a line which is both from Murnau that that um, that Herzog picks up a direct quote from when he sees the picture of Lucy he says you know what a beautiful throat and mm -hmm. when I heard that in Murnau I read that as like it is this desire for the blood right this time because I presume if he is this figure who has lived for centuries like He's probably read the vampire book too. He knows what can bring about his end. So when I, especially the second time I watched this, when I got to that line, I wondered, was he looking at her saying, mm. maybe she's the fulfillment of the thing that can bring an end to me. Like how much does he actually desire that end? Like in his, uh, not the animal part of his brain, but in the, the like uh, rational or human part of his brain is, is like, so, so is that desire both for feeding and for the potential for the thing to bring death to him? Uh, I just found that really interesting to, you know, to, to think about, uh, what that line means when he says it and, and immediately when he sees it, he's ready to sign any paper, pay any price to get there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so we should talk about Lucy because she is, uh, uh for one thing, uh, Isabel, uh, Johnny, is that how you say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, phenomenal performance. Phenomenal, like looks perfect for this character. Um, somehow embodies like a kind of uh, somehow is looks both very modern to me, but also so nineteenth century to me. There's and 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 great performance, I think, and great um, such a central character to this story. Now, what's interesting is she plays the same part that she plays in Murnau, but because of the things that Herzog is able to expand and the ideas Herzog's interested in, she becomes even more interesting of a character and she gets to carry some of the weight of the, um, the big theme, some of the big themes that he's interested in this movie. 
Yeah, one of the things I really like about what he does with Lucy is, yeah, she starts out um, as a kind of a passive victim in the same way that she is in Murnau's film. But by the end of the film, she's really the character that has the most agency. Uh, she has agency in terms of, uh, you know, she goes out into town and tries to get people to take action, tries to get Van Helsing to take action. She, as Lucy does, as, as, uh, as she does in Murnau's film, she does, you know, attract the count. She lays the the trap for him and make sure that he falls into it. Um, but I, I, it seems, she seems to be me to be a much more uh, interesting, um, much more modern woman in a sense than she is in, in, in the Murnau film. Yeah. I mean, she is, she is challenging Van Helsing. I mean, I, I there are this, these great uh, conversations, you know, and it's hard to describe the theme because <laughs> it's not like, um, I mean, at one level, you could say it's sort of science versus faith, but it's not not faith in the way you think or yeah. versus superstition or spirituality, but it's like science versus something beyond science. Um, and, you know, there are these the, the, the sort of debates that she has or, or conversations she has with um, with Van Helsing. And, and, you know, Van Helsing is basically saying, you know, science and reason have obliterated or I can't remember the verb he uses um, superstitions you know, and, and she, she is, you know, pushing back on that and saying, well, there's, there's something else there. You know, um, she says, you know, faith is the amazing faculty of man, which enables him to believe things, which we know to be untrue, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, so uh, it's like, this is both a movie filled with religious imagery, religious symbols with pieces of religion. But like you said, there's also sort of this, God doesn't seem to be a major presence here necessarily, but, but there is this sense that there are these superstitions or potentially, I mean, because Dracula is a supernatural being and there is this, this, this moment, I, I thought of this because of what we, I would have been teaching this week in class. There's this moment uh, where like Van Helsing is like the, almost this naivete of science mm-hmm. that we end up seeing where he is saying like, you know, science is a process. We, we have to take our time. We'll do this you know, we will, we will come to the answers. And it's almost as if he's saying, um, you know, science by declaring that it is the answer to things has eliminated superstition. And Lucy's sort of saying like, you can say you have, but that doesn't mean that just, just by declaring victory doesn't mean the supernatural has gone away. And it reminds me of Galileo when he's on trial and the church makes him Mm. recant his scientific teachings, but he points down and says, but it still moves. It's like, (laughs) yeah, you can declare scientific victory over truth, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a vampire across the street. And we need to, we need to realize that there's, more than what you understand, even if you don't want to believe there's more than what you understand. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that, um, you know, Van Helsing is made to be almost a ridiculous figure. Um, of course, I don't understand, to be frank, why he then shows up with a stake but it, it, and a hammer. But at any rate, um, you know, so Herzog takes out uh, all the Paracelsian stuff. He takes out the carnivorous plant and so, so science gets a, a much shorter shrift. And, 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 and the other thing that happens is that, you know, in, in, the, in the novel, uh, it's very much, you know, it's, it's, it is very much a religion. Uh, it is very much a, a spiritual battle, right? And, and various Christian symbols are efficacious against Dracula. 
Now, you do have a little bit of that in this film, right? Because you have the Eucharistic wafers that uh, restrict Jonathan, for example, as he's becoming... Which she a seems to have very good access to. I, that's the I, part know, I don't I, understand. I, I wondered, where in the world is she getting the uh, the sacrament? Uh, just kind of pulls it out of the drawer. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess you just have to kind of accept that one a little bit. Uh, I, anyway, but it's not... It isn't really the power of faith versus the vampire, right? So science is helpless against the vampire... Um, faith appears to have a limited power, but ultimately it's a battle in which it does, it's not clear that, that human beings have the resources to win it. Um, so, so, so to me, that's, that's one of the ways in which Herzog has very much kind of updated it. Um, I think with, in, in the case of Murnau, it, it isn't science, but there is a way of vanquishing vampires. In this case, you know, Herzog seems to be suggesting um, you vampires you will always have with you. Yes. Uh, you really can't defeat them. Well, and I actually really like the 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 sort of weird turn Van Helsing makes with the stake because it also then sets up the absurdity of like, okay, well, if it's not science, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this other thing, and then we get this absurd scene which feels like it's coming out of Samuel Beckett of like, well, I can't arrest him. <laughs> like, where, where would I take him? I don't have arms. I don't like, like, like you realize, you realize the effect that this has had on the city. Um, and, and it also points to the fact that um, underneath all of this dra- horror and drama is also a comedy <laughs> behind yes. all of this. If you wanted to watch it that way, I mean, it is a, it is a very, very funny scene about the absurdism of our, of of our systems and the the things that we look at to sort of hold life together and maybe the absurdisms of science when it comes to those things too. Um, so 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 I sort of like that Van Helsing you know does that because it creates that specific moment. Yeah, I thought you know I I I thought it was pretty pretty risky on 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 Herzog's part to put that element that late in the film as you're trying to come to some kind of a, some kind of a climax, but. I think it, it, it's getting it exactly one of the things he's trying to say about the influence of, of the vampire, that the vampire kind of uh, helps to expose um, the, the limitations of certain kinds of values. Um, you know, he says in, in talking about this in an interview, he says, um, he says, this is more than a horror film. He says, an asteroid is not a monster, but an ambivalent masterful force of change when the plague threatens people throw their property into the streets they discard their bourgeois trappings a reevaluation of life and its meaning takes place and so yeah there's no mayor there's no police there's no jail everything is kind of falling apart and it just shows how potentially tenuous all of that that stuff is exactly yes yeah so then we we also have this other great the, the scene when when dracula first comes to lucy um, and I was confused the first time I saw it because the door opens and closes and he's not there. And then his shadow's there. And then I realized we're looking in a mirror and that's why that is so well done. Um, but then they have like one of the great conversations in the, uh, in, in the movie where, um, you know, Dracula tells her that Jonathan is not going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, she says, well, you know, only death is clearly sure. And she is like, at first she doesn't get, he's not being comforting by saying Jonathan's not going to die. He's <laughs> saying he has become me. Um, and, and he is now cursed with what I'm cursed with. Um, and, and I, I mean, he says, you know, there's uh, it's more cruel not to die. And then he says, you know, I wish I could partake of the love between mm. you and Jonathan. So we get this other, 
this other sense where, you know, where he talks, uh, I think the, the line he says later is, uh, da, 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 da. the absence of love is the most abject pain, mm-hmm. right? So we get this sense that, that, you know, and this, this makes sense as a, uh, as a, a vampire who must feed on the people around him, you know, that like that, that I guess must, it, you know, by definition mean you, you can never have someone, you can never have love if you're feeding on the very thing that, that would be your, your opportunity for love, you know, to a certain degree. Um, and there's also this great moment when he, and, and this is where I'm going to make a stretch as a, as a, uh, not that this movie's quoting something, but that a later movie's quoting something right. like this. Um, when he says to her, uh, I could change everything. It, will you come to me and be my ally? That would be the salvation of your husband and for me. And then that's right. Then he says the absence of love is the most abject mm-hmm. pain. Um, because I was thinking about what, uh, when you see Kinski as the vampire, I was like, what does this look like? And I realized again, probably not a quote, but as a child of the eighties, I have to say this, like he looks exactly like in return of the Jedi, when Darth Vader gets his mask cut off, mm. he looks exactly like Klaus Kinski. And this sounds, <laughs> this, this speech sounds like Vader in empire, which comes out a year later mm. where he's reaching out to Luke. It's just like, come to me, be my ally, you know? And so, so I was like, Oh, I like, like there, there are just these moments where it's like, Oh, I feel like some of these, especially the visual of his face. I wonder if the people who were, uh, who were, were creating uh, the, the, the makeup work in, in empire thought of this. Cause it looks, it looks so much like it. If you just put the, the rest of the suit around him, um, well, I, but I, I, I find I, that to be I, such an interesting moment. No, I, I, I think what that says though, Sam, is that both of the films are type are tapping into some kind of archetypal, situation right where um evil is never is never simply evil um uh, at least at least if it has some human element so darth vader uh you know he starts out as this kind of symbol of uh somebody who's totally bad but we discover in fact you know he has a relationship with luke he's got a backstory and and he has a reason to be a true to appeal to Luke. And similarly here that, as we've already said that this, this vampire is not entirely inhuman. And so it makes sense that he appeals to Lucy at, at some, at some level. I also want to just briefly say i that scene was in, in, for me, is just stunning. The fact that he comes in the room and you don't see him in the mirror, because one of the things that bothered me at the climax of the Murnau film was that you did see him in the mirror and I don't know whether that was a technical challenge that Murnau couldn't overcome or, or, or whether it wasn't an element of the vampire myth that he was paying attention to. But I have to say it was a big moment of disappointment for me because I thought, well, I'm just going to pretend I didn't see him in the mirror because I know I'm not supposed to. So I just love the way uh, – the way that Herzog pulls this off. And I mean, I think if I, this, this to me is, is the scene that makes the film just because it brings together so many different elements of, of the, the drama, the relationship between Lucy uh, and, uh, and, and Dracula, as well as the technical uh, achievement. And it, and it makes the, you know, it, it also shows that there's, there's horror, on two different scales in the film. Uh, you know, the one scale is the scale of the plague and the people in the, in the town square and de- engaging in the dance of death. So that's kind of like this huge social statement. But then you have this very small kind of domestic confrontation with death. And that to me is, is Shakespearean. It's almost, it's like what happens in a Shakespeare play like Lear, where you have 
cosmic destruction as well as simply the um, the breakdown of a, of a nuclear family. Uh, to be able to operate at both of those scales, that that to me is particularly astonishing. Yeah, and I, I absolutely, and 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 I, I think that that was definitely the the a crux scene for me, and that was again that's a a scene that that Murnau didn't or couldn't do in a kind of way, and and that that's that's one of those things that sort of enriches, um, you know, uh, in, enriches this movie for me, and I also love this the. The two scenes we get in the town square, the one with the parade of coffins where Lucy's just trying to get somebody's attention. And that feels like a, like a uh, symbolic of also her conversations with Van Helsing, where there's just like this train of progress, which is just leading us to death. And she's trying to say, trying to stop them and say, there is something more or there is something different. And then the, the scene with the, the, the folks who are, you know, who say like, well, we have the plague, we're going to die. We need to, we need to live out these last days that we have. And it's like, they're unaware that the city is just overrun with rats. Now, as somebody who has a particular, um, uh, terror and, uh, traumatic firsthand experience with rats, this is a, this was a tough movie for me to watch. <laughs> um, but, but like re- that, all that stuff is so really well, is so really well done. Um, so let's get to Lucy's final scene, right? The the, mm. the scene between uh, Lucy and Dracula. And what I love for one thing is this is a silent film at this point. I, there's <laughs> nothing said in that moment, but there is a lot expressed. <laughs> a lot is said a lot through, through like movement of hands, through looks, through looks away, through all of this stuff. There, there is so much said, um, you know, and I, I love that we see her, we see him like... <laughs> And maybe I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, but you almost see him wrestling with two with those two desires that we talked about. There's the desire to feed. Mm-hmm. There's the desire for like sexual love. Like there is yeah. the do I go for the neck? But then he starts to pull up her dress as well, mm-hmm. and there is this sense of like like both of those are are are, are sort of wrestling within him. And again, this goes unsaid. And then there is all the great work that uh, that she does in terms of you know at first kind of holding him back and then pulling him in. Mm-hmm. And then when he, when it, when, you know, when he's sort of done feeding for the first time and she, he starts to move away her pulling him back in, you know, she, she knows what she's doing there and that's what ends up, you know, se- setting up his, his final demise. But I just thought that is such a, a beautifully put together. And it's just one, one shot where all of this stuff is acted wordlessly. And I think that's so much is going on with, with nothing being said. And, and and I think, you know, that Herzog sets that up with his casting. If you're going to cast Isabella Johnny in that role, you can't avoid uh, saying that we're going to go for a fairly sexualized version of the relationship bet- between the two. And I think, I think you know, there, you're right. There, there's, there's the careful manipulation uh, that she exerts on him. But I think it's also ambiguous as to, <laughs> if it doesn't sound too twisted, to wonder what she's getting out of this interaction as well right because she's doing it as a sacrifice for her husband which of course ironically uh it's not successful um very hard to in touch but there's also the sense that um his attraction for her towards her is a kind of um i mean that's 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 a kind of a, a thrill for her as well to know that she can actually manipulate him uh into staying longer so i think there's a there's an exchange going on that feels more mutual than in the Murnau film. Yes, it's a sacrifice, but I think it's also a kind of pleasure at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
It's yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what I what I love about this this idea of what she's doing here um, is you know we're seeing her trying to uh, use the. I mean, she's surrounded by death. Death is just everywhere. So and and she's the one who says you know the death is is this unavoidable thing. This is going to happen. This is coming for everyone. Um, so she's trying to find meaning in her death in her, you know, meaning to her life and her choices, right. By doing this sacrifice to try to save, um, somebody else, especially during a time of plague. Um, and this made me think of, um, another movie, which centers around this theme, um, which I kept thinking about because it is also set during a plague. It is about somebody who, is trying to find an appropriate sacrifice to give meaning to life. There, there's a lot of like seventh seal going on here too, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, thinking about that. Now the seventh, seventh seal, you can read as, as that sacrifice being this meaningful sacrifice in the face of the absurdity of death. And what Herzog does is the opposite, which is you get this powerful sacrifice and then you get to the end and think, did any of this matter? <laughs> and it is, and then it really just continues. I mean, in some ways, uh, Dracula got his release. If, yeah. if, if he was, in fact, looking for that, he got the thing he wanted. Um, but then we go and see that uh, Jonathan Harker is, I mean, he, at this point, his fingernails are grown out. His face <laughs> is white. He is, you know, he, he is uh, preparing for his work. You know, that's sort of his final line is, I have much to do or something like this. And then we see him ride off. Um, so, so I loved thinking about, you know, like, um, how very bleak this movie is by the time you get to the end of it is really interesting. But, 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 you know, the way Herzog sets, sets the hook in you is I also love that final scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, as, as awful as the message of the final scene is the beauty of the landscape and the, I don't know, there's, you know, there's always something thrilling about a horse riding fast and just the choice of the, of the Sanctus to go over that. um, It's just, it's like, you know, I mean, it, you should you should say, "Oh my gosh, this is awful. This is horrible." But you say, "No, this is this is beautiful," and yeah. you almost feel as though you're rooting for Jonathan as he rides off to become the new Dracula. Right. Absolutely. No. And 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 even the choice of landscape that it is this like, I guess a desert he's riding through or something. Yeah, who knows right? where like, we are? Right. Yeah. Uh, who, yeah. Who knows where this is? And he just sort of uh, rides off into the the sort of foggy distance and all you see are the tracks of the, like, it, yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous shot. I, I love the ending to it. So when I say bleak, I don't mean that as a negative. No, just, no. I find that very, I find that very, um, I didn't know how this was going to end. And when we got to that ending, I was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's the direction you're headed. So I, I, uh, yeah, I, I thought that, I thought that was great. Uh, one performance that I want to talk about, talk about just because we haven't mentioned him, uh, is mm. Roland Torper, uh, <laughs> who is the the artist behind one of my favorite movies we watched, Fantastic Planet. And he is so well cast uh, as Renfield, um, which is a character that you don't really need in this story. No. <laughs> like he, he doesn't serve a uh, narrative purpose other than somebody has to send, um, has to send Jonathan to Transylvania, but it, it need not, you need not keep going back to him, but I love every time he shows up, he is, you know, in the same way, like Kinski, you're, you know, he, he uh, is a strange person, you know, and then, and then he brings that to this role. 
Torpor is a brilliant artist, but also a very strange person and is perfectly cast in this role. And I think he was cast mostly just on his laugh, which is most, which is mostly what he does here. Yeah. And, and if you've ever seen interviews with him, I mean, he, he, he's, as you said, he's a strange person. He doesn't act much differently than he does as Renfield. He's got that. He has that characteristic giggle almost all, almost all the time. So yeah, I really, I really love that connection. And I had totally forgotten, even though when I saw the film in 79, I had seen fantastic planet, but I totally forgot that he was in it. Well, and it is interesting because so when this movie ends, you have the new the new vampire riding off to do his work. And we forget that Renfield has also left to do his work. He has the army of rats with him, right? Like, no, that's right. Like, like, you know, Dracula sends him off. So there's actually a multiplication of of darkness at, by the end of this movie. Uh, so do you have other things you want to talk about with this? I, I, okay. I, I just want to go back to the, the penultimate scene and, and one more thing, one more absurdity that, that, um, uh, that Herzog introduces. And that is that, uh, when, when, uh, the van, when Dracula dies, he doesn't evaporate as he does in Murnau, right? He just kind of cr- curls up on the floor. So this requires Van Helsing to drive the stake into him and then to get arrested for murder. I, I, I just, I, I just, just adding to the absurdity of that scene. Um, the other thing I'll say is we, we well, have. It's we, another, it's another vampire who's accusing him of murder too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, we really haven't said much about Bruno Gantz. Uh, Bruno Gantz is Jonathan Harker. He, he was, uh, uh, he was a great Swiss actor. Um, he was in a couple of great Vim Vendors films, uh, My American Friend and Wings of Desire. Uh, he was uh, uh, Hitler in uh, 2004's Downfall, uh, nominated for Academy Award. Um, and he also had worked on, I think, one other Herzog film. But I, 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 I mentioned him because there's a wonderful uh, scene of him scouring the, ca- the castle uh, in the daylight. And it's one long, uninterrupted cut as he runs through the castle. Just, just one, more, uh, one more cinematic technique that Herzog sh- shows off. You also have the very strange appearance of the um, of the gypsy boy with the violin oh, in yeah. the castle. And I mean, I don't think he's really there. It, 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 it's inexplicable. It's also inexplicable to me why when Jonathan finds Dracula in his coffin, he doesn't destroy him at that point. Um, but at any rate, he, he, he doesn't. So, so anyway, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. And I think his transformation into a vampire is really scary. I think he's yeah. really kind of terrifying. Yeah, no. And, and I will say the, 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 yeah, I forgot about the gypsy boy. Cause that was, that's one of those great creepy elements where you're just like, I don't even understand this. And I know they're not going to say anything more, but it's very affecting. Um, I would actually say the whole all the scenes at the end. Also, I, I just want to tip my hat to, to Herzog as a documentarian again. Like those just, that just feels like documentary footage. Like he shows up. It's, it's, as, it's as if that place existed and he had his actor ride up and we're just going to shoot this. I mean, I realize that's not what it is, but it definitely has the feel of documentaries where you see people going into different cultures where, you know, he doesn't speak the language there, but the looks that he's getting from people, that's, re- that's a really, really well done scene as well. Uh, anything else or do or should we move on to next week yeah let's talk about next week all right right. what do you have for us well you know just as uh after doing the godfather we felt we needed to do a little bit of a comic take on the godfather i think to end our run of vampire films we need to do a comic take on vampire films so um 
And also, it's a mockumentary, which I think is also appropriate. We've done documentaries. We haven't really, I don't think we've really done a good mockumentary yet. So I want to do, um, watch what we do in the shadows uh, from, two, from 2014 uh, from the New Zealand film, filmmaker uh, Taki Wakiti. Um, so that's, that's how we're going to end up. Oh, I'm so excited. I have never seen this. I've heard it's really fun. So I'm very, very excited about this. Uh, Barrett, as always, uh, thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for introducing me to the world of Werner Herzog. <laughs> I, uh, whenever I get a chance to watch something from him or even something he's in, he is, he is magnetic and interesting and he makes interesting work and he raises great questions. Um, so I, I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about what we do in the shadows in the video store.